That brings us to chapter 20. Chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. You must understand something. This is where Cecil DeMille's Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston got it all wrong. And unfortunately, they got it so wrong and so visually powerfully wrong that we have forever thought that this is the way it happens. So we imagine now Moses going up on the mountain, disappearing for 40 days. He carves out these Ten Commandments. Well, technically, God does it. And he brings them back and discovers the people worshiping the golden calf. And he's like, doik. Like, if you would have just waited a couple more days, you would have known that this was wrong. But that's not how it happened. Because the very next verse is God speaking the Ten Commandments. God speaks the Ten Commandments directly to them with his own mouth. Way before the golden calf. So remember, God says, I'm coming down. Make sure everybody's there. Everybody's listening, but nobody comes up on the mountain. And then God says, get ready. I'm about ready to speak to the people. That's how chapter 19 ends. Remember, there was no chapters in the original Bible. And then it says, God spoke all these words. He is speaking the Ten Commandments directly to them verbally from this big ball fire mountain and earthquake and lightning and trumpets and all that kind of stuff. And that's important for you to understand. This isn't secondhand. This isn't like after the golden calf. This isn't even be, this is the voice of God saying, this is what I expect. Now, the other thing you understand is nowhere does this ever call the Ten Commandments. Nowhere is it ever called the Ten. Nowhere is it ever called Commandments. They're just called the words that God spoke. That's it. Now, why do we think there's Ten Commandments? Well, because most scholars have agreed that there's a couple like you, 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 you. And we've kind of like gotten it down to 10. The Catholics actually have a different way of organizing it. Okay, they actually separate what we would consider the first two commands into, or the first command into two. So not everybody agrees on the dividing of these things, but most people accept there's 10. Now, I'm not trying to grade the 10 commandments. I'm just saying, technically, nowhere does God say how many commandments there are. And nowhere are they call commandments. But it's kind of clear that when God is speaking this and says, if you obey me, then I will, then they are commands. So a lot of people just call them the ten words of God. But, but remember, like these aren't the ten words of Cory Bakker. <laughs> these are the ten words of the divine God of the universe, which automatically makes them commands. So I'm not trying to lessen them. I'm just trying to help you understand how God is directly using these. So there's no magic number to ten. There's nothing like that. These are just the words of God of what he expects from them. And so he's going to list these out. The other thing you must understand is that these commandments are not comprehensive. That when we get, we're going to get into two sections tonight, the Ten Commandments and then the Covenant Code. And these are not meant to be exhaustive. You're going to, you can probably think that there's a lot of things that God could have also included in here like what to do with Facebook and that kind of stuff. <laughs> the reality is these are additions onto the law. You're, when we get through the covenant code, you're going to feel like, wow, that's, I feel like there should be more details added to this law. Well, it's because God is just adding to the laws that already exist from other nations. Mostly what he's doing is adding what he thinks should have been added because they didn't have it, or changing it and saying, I don't agree with that law, so I'm going to change it, or take away from that law. And so a lot of it, he's just kind of directly, he's, he's giving a special revelation to the general revelation that they have already known, they've already accepted. 
So the Ten Commandments, you have to understand, is not... These are not meant to be seen as specific commands. These are general commands. And what this is, this is God's love language. What God is sharing is, this is my character. This is what righteousness looks like. And if you love me and you love others, you'll do this. And I think most of you know by now that the first four commandments are how you love God. And the last six commandments are how you love your neighbor. And the two greatest commandments is love God and love others. Those are really the only ten, two commandments. The only commandments in the entire Mosaic Covenant is love God and love others. These are just general things. So if you love God, you don't go and worship other gods. If you love people, you don't steal from them. You don't kill them. That's kind of unloving. So these are kind of like, remember, we talked about last week, we are sinful people who have no idea what righteousness even looks like. So one of the first things that he's doing is giving them a broad stroke picture of righteousness. So here's the tension. You shouldn't look at the Ten Commandments as these ten magical, holy, like these are the Ten Commandments kind of a thing. And that there's something like really special, unique about these compared to everything else in the Bible. That's not true. I think we've lifted these Ten Commandments up as too unholy and too unique from everything else. And we've missed it. We've made it like, well, check, 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 check on these 10 things and you're good. And we've missed that. And because we've made these 10 commandments so important and so lifted it up, I think in a way they've subconsciously become even more important than our relationship with God. It's become act this way and don't do this. And if you're do that and you don't do that, then you're a good Christian check. And we've missed that. And that's not how God's portraying us. God is not saying these are 10 magical things that if you accomplish them, then check, you're a good person. That's behaviorism. That's every other religion out there. But I also don't want to degrade them and make it sound like, oh, no big deal. These are just kind of 10 suggestions from God because they still are the commands of God. They still are what love God and what loving others are. And you are expected to live this way. And if you don't, then you don't inherit the blessings of God and you have no relationship with them. But the proper way to realize this is this is a broad stroke of what love looks like. And what I want to really emphasize tonight is this isn't about not murdering people. This isn't about stealing from people. This isn't about not having affairs. This is about way more than that. This is not about this behavior and not that behavior. This is about the character of God. This is about what God expects you to be because you want to be this way, because you know a God that is like this and you're so in love with this God that you can't help but be like him. And the thing that I really want you to understand, God gave you a brain and he gave you an entire Bible and he expects the Jews to look through the entire book of Genesis and Exodus and see the character of God. Then he expects them to take these 10 general, broad stroke commands of what love looks like and plug them into the character of God and unpack and extrapolate them. And when we make it just about, well, I didn't murder, and there we go, then you miss it when Christ extrapolates it and says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart, 
you're a murderer. And that's exactly what Christ is doing. He's saying, look, look, all you Pharisees, you turn these into the magical holy Ten Commandments. And you said, well, I haven't killed anybody, and I haven't had an affair, and I haven't stolen anything. Check, 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 I'm righteous. But what Christ is saying, but what you missed was the character of God in these laws. What you meant was what you miss is plugging these general things into who he is and extrapolating it into a whole mindset, a whole character of what it means to be godly and what it means to live in life. And if you would have really understood that this is about loving God and loving others, you would have realized that this was not about murdering people. This is about your heart and the anger. And if you're murdering somebody, that's just, you've already committed a sin way before that. You've already been out of touch with God way before that. You've already stepped out of the character and the righteousness of God way before that. Because the only way you can get to that murder is if you have that anger and you've nurtured it for a long time. Therefore, you were not righteous. Even though behaviorally, you looked really good. And that's what I want to hope to try to portray is that we, I don't want to lift these up that they become magical behaviorist things. But at the same time, we don't want to lower them because they're actually way more in depth than what we could have ever imagined. And we need to put them in their proper place. And so the first command is, I, Yahweh, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt with the house of slavery. Notice two things I said. I am God and I saved you. Nobody else did. That's why you're going to do these things. That's why you're going to do these things. You will not have any other gods before me. Now, this one seems like kind of a no-brainer, except it's not really, (laughs) because polytheism is huge back then and today. And so we don't seem to get this one. What this command is primarily expecting from us is soul, total, devotion to him and him alone. Pretty much what most of us would expect from our spouses. And this is what drives me nuts about people today, is they'll be like, you're, you're so narrow-minded and bigoted. Like, there's so many gods out there. And if God is so big, then how can you say that only him and him can be worshipped? Isn't that arrogant of him? Isn't that arrogant of you? Well, then my next response is, you're so arrogant and narrow-minded that you're actually against your wife sleeping around with a bunch of people. The very thing that will, of course, now in America, there's a lot of people who are okay with that, but most people are not. And even the people who are okay with it really are not on an emotional, deep down in their heart kind of a sense. They're just in a hippie, free love kind of a sense on the surface, but not really truly. And so the reality is, this is exactly what you expect of a spouse a soul devotion to you. Now here's the thing. There is no other legitimate God out there who can handle all your problems. There is no God that loves you enough to actually care about you and save you. So why would you want to go after anything else? I mean, this is what God is trying to portray, that if you really truly get what they're all like, and you truly get what he is like, then you lose your desire for everything else. Why would you want anything else? It's actually an insult to God to go to something lesser. It's actually crippling to you to go after something lesser. Your relationship is not going to be as meaningful. 
And so all God is saying is, I really truly am the only God out here on a truly unique, all-powerful level. I'm the only God that ever loved you enough to save you. Why would you ever want anything else? And for you to desire anything else is a huge insult to me because I literally one day am going to give up my son for you. And you say I love you by going after other stuff, by going to other places. And that's the first and primary thing that God is trying to communicate, his oneness. Now, he's not denying that other gods exist. There are other gods out there. The Bible says it very clearly. There's other gods out there. He does not deny the existence of other gods because the, the angels are called Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. There are other gods that they worship. There are other choices out there, just like there are other choices for all of us in marriage or relationships out there. What he's denying is that any of them are valid. So technically, God is a polytheist. He does acknowledge that there are many gods out there, but he is a monotheistic in his devotion. He expects us one. And this is where you clearly see this is Deuteronomy 6.4. In Deuteronomy 6.4, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Now, many modern-day Jews use that to try to prove to us the Trinity is wrong because God clearly says he's one and the Trinity is three. And so there you go. It's false. And the best answer I hear for Christians is like, well, technically he's still one, though. So, but no, 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 that's not a very good answer. The best answer to that is Solom- Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. In Song of Solomon, the only other time that you see this word one in this construction, like the word one shows up other places, but the way that it's all put together, the Lord is one. The only time you see that is in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. And Solomon is writing a love song to his bride-to-be, and he says, Though there be sixty queens and eighty concubines, and young women without number, for me, she is but one. He's acknowledging that there are other choices out there, but in my eyes, she's the only one that I'm devoted to. She's the only one that I have eyes for. She's the only one that I'm committed to. And that's how God is using it. Though there may be television and sex and drugs and alcohol and family and work and business and Baal and Zeus and Allah, for me, Yahweh is one. And that's what makes the love even greater. You see, what makes love even greater is the fact that there are other options out there. And yet you still choose to be committed to him and him alone. And so this is what God is trying to communicate. I get that there are other things out there. If there weren't other things out there, I wouldn't need the first command. But because I am solely devoted to you, I just want you to be solely devoted back to me. And this is why God says, I am a jealous God. I am jealous for you. I desire you more than anything else to the point that I'm willing to die for you. Now here's the other thing you must understand you will never become greater than the thing that you worship. If you lift something up and say, I'm going to dedicate my life to this, I'm going to give everything to it, you're putting it above you. And if you're bowing down to it and you're worshiping it and you've lifted it up as the most ultimate goal, you can never become more than that thing. 
if you become more than that thing, then you're not truly worshiping it and you're not truly have made it the most ultimate goal. So success at work, a good family that everybody in the neighborhood can be proud of, okay, obedient children, good grades, okay, whatever it is, when you lift that up as this is what will make me happy, this is what will complete me, sex addictions, alcohol addictions, good or bad, okay, idolatry is not about just going after evil things. Idolatry is going after anything that is not God, period. When you lift that up as the ultimate goal and you bow down to it and you give all your money and all your resources to it, so to speak, you can never become greater than that thing. So you'll never be more than just a sexual person. You'll never be more than someone who needs alcohol. You'll never be more than just a businessman or woman. You'll never be more than just that woman in the family or that kid with the grades. And that will be your identity. And so you need to understand that you can never become greater than that. So part of the reason that God is also saying I'm the only one is because God is without limit. He is unlimited. He is the most ultimate thing in the entire universe, which means if you bow down to him, there's no end to your potential. The, one of the reasons that a lot of Muslims do not view themselves and each other with great value is because Allah does not value them. Allah makes it very clear how much he does not love them in the Quran. Allah makes it very clear that he doesn't want to know you. And Allah makes it very clear that even if you live a perfect life, which is possible in Islamic religion, he still may send you to hell because he just feels like it that day when you die. If your God does not value you, how in the world are you going to value yourself or anybody else? But if you worship a God who is the divine God of the entire universe without limit and an endless amount of potential, and it, will, and it loves you more than anything else in the entire world, it has created you with this most unlimited potential, then imagine what you can become when you're devoted to him. And so you will never become greater than the thing that you bow down to. And so one of the reasons, you know, when God says, like, give me all the glory, and some people say, well, that's kind of selfish. God really just dies for you and saves you and creates you so you can give him all the glory all the time. Like if I did that, like I'm just going to create a class and do all this stuff so you just kind of like affirm me all the time. We would say selfish, arrogant. But think about it. When you come back from a movie that you really liked it or a restaurant that you really love or whatever, music that you've heard, what do you immediately begin to tell, do? You tell everybody about it. There's this really awesome song. You've got to listen to it. Just really connected with me or this movie was so good the character development the plot was just amazing or this food all oh, this food is so divine these brownies this is the most chocolate i've ever had in the brownies it just drips out of your mouth you start telling everybody you can't help it because you want them to experience the same thing that you've experienced so by god saying give me all the glory praise me tell everybody about me he's not saying Oh, I was having a really bad today. Oh, this feels really good. This is really what I needed to boost my mood and my self-esteem. Or like, oh, I'm just this megalomaniac who just needs more and more and more. What it is, is that he's going to pour into your life unlike anybody else ever has, which is going to make you wowed. It's going to make you fall in love with him in the point that you can't help but tell everybody about him so that they end up experiencing the same thing that you have and their life becomes more complete and satisfied. And so it's actually selfless of God to demand all the glory. 
Because if he is the greatest thing in the entire universe, then he's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. So giving him all the glory and getting people attracted to him and getting them connected to him will become the greatest thing that could ever happen to them, which is an incredibly selfless act of love. And that's why God demands such exclusivity, because it lifts you up to your highest potential. It lifts you up to your highest sense of meaning and self-worth, but it also draws everybody else into the greatest thing that could ever happen to them. Why would you ever want to go after anything else? You're destroying your life and you're ruining it for other people who might have been the only way they would have ever known about God is you, but you're too busy being an idolater and limited to just this one thing. And this is why God sets this command up. It's not arrogant. The other thing you must realize is we can turn anything into an idol. Okay, idols are not just those totem poles or those statues that people worship. It is for them. But you've got to extrapolate this. Idols are anything that you put in place of God. And I've already mentioned them. Career, job, money, this kind of stuff. Augustine said it well. Augustine said idolatry is disordered love. Remember Paul says that everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial. If God created everything and pronounced everything good, then there's nothing bad that you can bring into your life. Sex, drugs, alcohol, none of this is bad because God pronounced it good. For you to say that it's bad in itself is to call God a liar. I should be probably more scared of you becoming an alcoholic or you saying that God is wrong than you becoming an alcoholic. Nothing is bad. The problem is when we disorder the love. When we take a good thing and we make it greater than God. And we're so good at this that we can turn family, we can turn church, we can turn the Bible, we can turn knowledge, we can turn sex, we can turn anything good into something bad. And so what becomes bad is that you've idolized it and therefore you've corrupted the intention and then it ends up kicking back on you and destroying your life because you can never become greater than that thing and therefore all you become is that thing and that thing limits you and it ends up ruining you because everything else goes out the window. And so you must realize that idolatry is first and foremost a disordered love. And this is why the best thing that you should do is Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart and test me in my anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. You need to constantly ask God, what am I idolizing? What have I put in place of you? And so, no, we don't have literal physical idols anymore, although those are coming back. It's the fastest growing religion in America right now. But where our idols are more dangerous, because it's easy to point to a stone and say, see, that's dumb. Don't worship that. It's a lot harder to look at our life and see work and family and That just slowly creeps because those are all good things. And this is what God has called you to. If you make those things your things, they will destroy you. How do you know an idol? Tim Keller has a great definition of idolatry. It's whatever you invest most of your energy, time, emotions, and worries into. 
if you find yourself worrying about something a lot or you find yourself investing a lot of your time, it's like when people say, I love my family and I love God more than anything else, and then all they ever do is play and watch football. Okay, that's your idol. Football's an easy one to pick on, okay, because we're in Ohio. So, um, but the reality is, is whatever you are devoting most of your thought life to and most of your energy and time to, but here's the other way you define it. It's whatever you have the most nightmares about, the most worries about. If I took this thing from you, would your life collapse? Would you think I can't live without this? Not that this would seriously sadden me, but I really seriously think that I would become suicidal and everything would fall apart if I lost my job. That I would seriously become suicidal and lose my job if, or everything if I lost my spouse that I've sunk so much of my self-worth that I need this thing to feel complete, that if I lost it, my entire life would collapse. And I worry about this constantly. I have nightmares about it, so to speak. And I fear it, that I don't know how I would function without it. That's your idol. It's really easy to say, check. I don't have a totem pole or a statue in my backyard. But when you think it about that way, you probably think, oh, crap. You're idolaters. We all are. 